Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. Before we just jump right in, I want to do some review and look at where we've been in our Faith and Doubt series. If you have not been tracking with each episode, with each sermon, I would encourage you to go back and uh, listen from the beginning. That will help you track in the best way. So we started with looking at the doubts of our own church family. To really condense those results, they are that sometimes Christians are jerks, that bad things happen, that we have questions about the Bible and science, we have experiences that make us ask, where is God? And we just ask, am I even lovable? But we also looked at how do we experience connection with God and faith? And we experience that connection through relationships, through experiencing God in the midst of pain and suffering, in spiritual practices and in prayer. We experience God in nature. We experience God when serving others and in cross-cultural experiences and surprise experiences and mile markers through Bible memorization and meditation and through ideas and concepts. And our approach to this whole series is recognizing that uh, the ground underneath our feet is always moving. And so we want to have what has been called an earthquake-ready faith, which means we want to have a foundation that isn't built rigidly, like you just pour more and more concrete into the foundation, but rather a foundation that's built on rollers so that we can move when the ground is moving underneath our feet. So we looked at the lesson of faithless Thomas, sometimes called Doubting Thomas, although that word doesn't show up in the story, and how that story in the Bible really shows us it's a call to stick together in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of pain and questions. And then we looked at interpreting scripture when the Bible is used to hurt other people. And we looked at how Jesus teaches us to interpret scripture with the human needs of people right here and now in view. And then we looked at getting the Bible, quote unquote, right, and how there are 45,000 different denominations of Christian churches which means if you're saying there's one right way, there's like one, maybe one church that's getting the Bible right, 
there's like a 0.002% chance of getting the Bible right. But that wasn't where we landed. We said, maybe there isn't just one right reading of any given text. What if God comes to a thousand different people through the Bible in a thousand different ways? Because God knows what each one needs. So what if the Bible is more like a doorway to the living God? And then we looked at the call that Jesus makes to repent, to think again, and looked at how that might be the redemption of the original sin of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus invites people to be willing to say, I might be wrong. I might need to learn something new. And then we looked at this question that people ask, did that Bible story even happen? And recognized that God allows a wide diversity of people to tell God's story. And they all tell that story from their own vantage point. And that is some of what's going on when we read these stories in the Bible and we're saying, did that really happen? That's some of what's going on. So, now we are jumping into what we're actually doing today. We begin our series with a number of questions. We asked, do you know any of the reasons that your friends, relatives, or neighbors walked away from faith? And what kind of faith were they walking away from? And we asked, what are some of the things that have rocked your faith the most, caused you to feel jaded, uncertain, skeptical, or done? And quite a few of the answers had to do with creation and evolution, the book of Genesis, and science. So I'll show you some of those answers. Uh, one person said, My science teacher used to be Catholic. He went to a private school and then he ended up going to be a science teacher. I'm pretty sure he has stepped away from faith and I think the reasoning is that he had to choose which he believed in, faith or scientific fact, and he chose science. There might have been other factors, but that's what I think may have happened. Someone else said evolution versus creationism. Another answer, science. Creation and science conflict. Another person can't see God and prove God scientifically. Someone else said, I sometimes find it hard to believe when I get told or learn about science. Science and faith don't always go hand in hand, and sometimes it's difficult to know which one is correct or which one to believe in. Another person, science really gets me thinking about doubts. Questions about genetics. Belligerent, politically polarized Christians who are blind to ethics and reality in political, scientific, and medical controversy over the last few years. Another person, balancing intellect with intuition, accepting the ambivalence of everyday life versus the absolute of God's creation. So as you can see, these are real questions. And they cause some people to walk away from faith altogether. And so I want 
to start today's conversation by saying up front, I am not here to convince you of a young earth theory or of an old earth theory, like theistic evolutionary theory, because I'm not qualified to do either of those. I wasn't there when it all happened, so there's that. But I do have a fantasy that one day in the new heaven and earth that I will ask the creator, hey, can you show me the highlight reel of the creation of the universe? Like, I don't need to see it all play out in real time, but I want to see the highlight reel. And guess what? If the creator shows me a young earth creation story, that happened 6,000 to 10,000 years ago in a literal seven days, I will say, hallelujah, that is amazing. That is incredible. And if the creator shows me an old earth creation story that began 14 billion years ago and life forms that begin showing up about 4 billion years ago, I will say, Hallelujah. That is incredible. That is amazing. So I'm not here to convince you that one view is right and the other view is wrong. There are Christians with deep and abiding faith in the living God who are brilliant and well-read and well-intentioned, and some of them hold completely opposite views on these questions. So I'm not here to change your mind. My hope is to keep the questions about creation and evolution from causing you to walk away from faith in the living God. And I also hope to help you hold your view, whatever your view is, in such a way that you don't cause someone else or the next generation to walk away from their faith in the living God. The data right now about young people who walk away from faith because they were told that you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution, that data is problematic. One of the primary reasons young people leave the church is they feel like the church is anti-science. And so too many people have been taught a false dichotomy about God and science. And it's basically, they feel like their choices are either they reject God or they reject a vast body of scientific research. And they feel like those are their choices. And it's a false dichotomy. As uh, Escoleto in Nacho Libre, if you've seen that film, so poignantly states, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And he's basically saying this false dichotomy. So let's begin the conversation. Our conversation actually doesn't begin by trying to unpack the relationship of Christianity to science. We're not even going to tackle that part of it today. Today we are tackling the book of Genesis it begins with trying to understand the book of Genesis in its ancient context. And so that's where we're going to spend our time today. And then next week, 
we will look at the relationship of Christianity to science. Genesis is the story of Israel's origins. And because it is an origin story, a lot of people assume it's probably an original story, but that's actually not the case. Israel's neighbors, like Assyria, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, they had origin stories as well. And their origin stories have striking similarities to Israel's origin stories. So they had origin stories such as the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Atrahasis, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Eridu Genesis, the Sumerian King List. And it's fascinating to note the similarities and the differences in these stories. For instance, a comparison of Atrahasis and Genesis has many similarities. These creation stories, they both have an Eden-like place with plants that are watered, gods that create humans, the institution of marriage, humans that do something to upset the gods, life becomes much harder for humans after that, and then humans upset the gods even more, and so the gods flood the world, and when the flood subsides, then humans offer sacrifices to appease the gods, and finally the gods reconcile to humans and give them a fresh start. Both of those stories have that same storyline. The origin stories of many ancient cultures include a flood narrative or a flood myth. Uh, like just a quick Google search about ancient flood narratives or flood myths brings up all kinds of stories from around the globe. Like just a quick search, I counted like 64 different flood narratives listed, and that's barely trying. I remember being intrigued when I spent time with the people of Grand Ronde Tribal Confederation and learning that somehow, even with their experience of, you know, there were 30 different tribes that all were forced sadly, tragically, to leave their land and come together as one, live in one place. There was a lot of culture and history that they lost, but somehow they still held on to an ancient flood narrative that they place around 12,000 to 15,000 years ago. And so many people, so many cultures have some kind of a flood story. So back to the people of Israel and their Babylonian neighbors who took them captive into exile. One of the Babylonian flood stories of the day was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's fascinating to note how similar that story is, the Epic of Gilgamesh, to the story of Noah found in Genesis. So the flood story of Gilgamesh includes a large boat with exacting instructions and measurements for the main character to build. 
It has animals that come on board along with the family. They use tar or pitch to make the door waterproof. The boat finally ends up on a mountaintop. The main character lets birds go to find out have the floodwaters receded or not. And so when you start paying attention to all of these similarities between Israel's ancient origin stories and Israel's neighbors, you begin to look at the Genesis story differently. Because instead of putting on your Charles Darwin tinted glasses to read Genesis, because a lot of people do that, like they, they start reading Genesis and they're, they're thinking about all the science questions. But once you realize how many similarities there are to these ancient origin stories, you start hunting around for your ancient Babylonian, Sumerian, Assyrian tinted glasses to read the book of Genesis. Because you realize... These ancient authors and editors, they didn't have a problem using similar origin stories to the cultures around them, but they were using those stories to make meaning in a different way. Their origin stories told people something about, here's how we see the world, here's how we understand ourselves within this world, and that's where it gets really interesting. The meaning-making isn't so much found in the similarities in all of these different origin stories that were around and present at that time. The meaning-making is found in the differences between Genesis in the Bible and the other ancient origin stories of the day. The Babylonian origin story, the Enuma Elish, starts out with, basically, in the beginning, there was bloodshed. That's how it starts. They, their world wasn't created out of goodness. Instead, their story goes that there's a violent battle between the gods, Marduk and Tiamat, and the earth was created out of the body of the slain god, the loser, Tiamat, and then all the other gods said to the winner, Marduk, okay, now that you created Earth, you got a lot of work on your hands to keep it up, and Marduk didn't want to do that work. And so Marduk created humans out of the blood of Tiamat's weakest and worst warriors to take care of the Earth because none of the gods wanted to do that lowly grunt work. So... In the Babylonian origin story, humans are literally created from the weakest and the worst. Humans are, I mean, talk about losers from the beginning. Humans are not the crown of creation. They are created as an afterthought, simply to take care of this world because the gods don't want to do it. The gods scorn humans for their work. Now contrast that story with the Genesis origin story. Genesis says that all creation is good, not evil, it's good. And it says that the entire story is good. Humans aren't just good, they are very good. They are like God's crowning achievement, not a sloppy afterthought that, you know, like, oh, we got to have someone take care of the decaying body of a dead God. That's not 
what they're created for. Genesis declares that work is good and creativity is good and stewardship is good and humans are invited to be co-creators and partners with God and humans are invited to rest. Rest is good. So do you see the differences between those stories? The Babylonians thought that the sun and the moon and the stars all help them figure out the future. They need to read the stars. But in the book of Genesis, the stars aren't for telling the future. They serve as signs, Genesis 1.14, to mark sacred times. It's a reference to the people of Israel's annual calendar of worship, worshiping Yahweh with festivals and celebrations. In the ancient world, the only divine image bearer those folks were kings. Those were the divine image bearers. But Genesis declares that from the beginning, all humans, male and female, all humanity is created in the image of God. All humans carry this royal status, a calling to be good kings and queens of creation. In the ancient flood narrative of Atrahasis, the world is flooded because there are too many humans, and those humans are too noisy. And so God is literally sick of hearing them. But in the ancient Genesis story of Noah, the world is flooded because this world that is created out of goodness has become full of violence, and God says it's ruined. It's completely ruined. So do the ancient Genesis stories sound any different? when you put on those ancient Babylonian, Sumerian, Assyrian-tinted glasses. These stories were meant to be meaning-making stories with a powerful God-breathed point in their day. Genesis wasn't written to prove to Charles Darwin that the world was or wasn't created 10,000 years ago, because that question would have never occurred to the ancient writers and editors of these stories. They could not have imagined that question. We read Genesis and we want to know whether or not Noah loaded up 100 to 120 different kinds of dinosaurs on the ark. And if not, why not? But the writers of Genesis weren't thinking about that kind of a question. It was written to tell people, the people of Israel and their Babylonian, Sumerian, Assyrian neighbors, Hey, look, guys, this world was birthed out of goodness and love, not violence. And humans are good. They aren't losers. And work is meaningful. And it's creative. It's not shameful. And rest is necessary. And it's even worshipful. And every person has unsurpassable value and worth. And it's more important to worship God with trust and admit you don't know everything than to try to figure out and control the future all on your own. So the many connections and similarities that we find to the origin stories of Babylon and Assyria and Sumeria make a lot more sense when we look at when and where biblical scholars think that the stories of Genesis were actually compiled and edited into one book, a book that is the first book in a series of five books. Uh, it's called the Pentateuch.
So biblical scholars think that the writing and the compiling of these ancient stories, like the stories may have been around for a very long time, but they think the writing started around the time of King David and really got going after 586 BC when the people of Israel were taken away into captivity and exile in Babylon. So you see that red arrow there if you're looking at the graphic. Two generations of children were born in Babylon that they had zero ties to the land God had promised. They'd never seen it, smelled it, played in its dirt, planted, eaten the fruit, never gone to any of the annual worship pilgrimages to Jerusalem, worship at the temple, but the temple's destroyed at that time. So these, these children are growing up in a land that is filled with a whole bunch of other people's origin stories, stories about their gods, and other temples, Marduk, Tiamat, Gilgamesh, Atrahasis, these kinds of stories. And it was a very sad time, a very traumatic time for the people of Israel. Are we going to lose our identity as a people altogether in these next few generations? And so it started to feel really important that they get their ancient origin stories into writing. The Genesis story is written from the point of view of Israel's own struggle to figure out their relationship with God, who they are as a people, losing their land in exile, what it all means. And it's why the book of Genesis includes anti-Babylonian stories like the Tower of Babel intent and strong anti-Canaanite stories like who owned the land before the Israelites, and stories about what happened to people who didn't follow aspects of the law, the Torah. Even though the Torah hadn't been given and didn't exist at the time that the ancient stories of Genesis are said to be occurring, but the characters in that story are treated like, well, you should just know. You should just know this stuff. So are you beginning to see how the ancient editors of the Genesis stories, they weren't trying to answer Charles Darwin uh, because they couldn't imagine such a question, but because they had bigger fish to fry. They were coming from a divided kingdom that had been taken away into exile, and now they have children that are growing up listening to a bunch of other people's origin stories, and they, they need to get their origin stories uh, really strong. If you've always read Genesis as answering Charles Darwin, or if you've never encountered the ancient origin stories of Babylon, Sumeria, Assyria, then it could make a lot of questions race through your head like, okay, what am I supposed to make of the story of Adam and Eve? And did the Adam and Eve story actually happen? And for a lot of people, the Adam and Eve story is pretty foundational. It's pretty important. It's the creation story. And so a lot of thoughts and a lot of emotions can come up if you're asking questions about that story. And so it's important to note when we talk about the Adam and Eve story, we're not actually talking about one story. When we talk about the creation story, 
We're not talking about one story. We're talking about stories. The book of Genesis is actually a compilation of at least 10 different stories because each time a new story starts, it begins with this phrase, this is the account of, or these are the generations of, or these are the descendants of, and it's the same Hebrew phrase. shows up a little differently in English, but this is the way all of these stories begin. And what's fascinating is how the editors of Genesis let each story stand on its own, even though these stories have different and contrasting information and details. So, for instance, there are two creation accounts. Um, so, Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and then Genesis 2, verse 4 through verse 25. And so, uh, you read Genesis 1, and it tells this story of God creating the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea creatures, the birds, the animals, finally humans, and resting. And it concludes, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. And you say, great, that's how it happened. But then Genesis 2 verse 4 starts out, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Wait, wait a minute. I thought you just told us the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Why are you telling us this story again? And wait a minute, why does God have different names in these two different stories? We've got Elohim and Jehovah Elohim. And in the first version, in Genesis 1, the world has no form. It's chaos. God spends the first three days just ordering the space. It's been compared, very helpful, to clearing a super messy kitchen table so that you can play a board game. And before you set up the board game, you have to clear the space, the get rid of the chaos. And so God creates space, separating light from dark, waters above from waters below, separating oceans from dry land. And then on the next three days, God, it's like God has the table cleared, and so God sets up the board game. God fills the space with sun and moon and stars and sea creatures and birds and animals, and finally on the last day, humans. Okay, fair enough, got it. And then you read the second version of the creation story. Everything is different. The story is all out of order. Like, God creates one human before any plants, before any animals are created. Well, wait a minute. That is exactly opposite from the first story. In the first story, God creates two humans at the very end of the whole project. But here we have one human at the very beginning. It's completely backwards. And then God creates a garden and makes trees grow there. And then God starts ordering the waters around and gets some rivers running. And then God realizes that something about this creation project actually isn't good. The first story says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It doesn't give us any idea that there's anything that isn't good. But the second story says, well, actually, there was something that wasn't good. And that's the, the one man is alone. 
And so God creates animals then, like, okay, it's way out of order because we've got a, a guy before the animals, but here now God creates the animals and lets the man name them, but none of them are a suitable companion. The guy is still alone. And so then God finally makes a suitable companion out of the man's rib, so a second human. So these are the two very different creation stories, the two different stories of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And apparently the editors of Genesis did not see a problem with letting these two different stories, these two different renditions, stand side by side. And apparently they can both be God-breathed stories because what they're trying to communicate is not writing on whether or not we have the days of creation in the right order. If we read the stories asking the wrong questions, we'll probably end up with the wrong answers too. Biblical interpreters down through the centuries have gone three different directions with Adam and Eve. And so much of what I'm sharing here, this is not original research with me. I'm sharing the work of many other people. Uh, so it's been summed up and presented by theologians like this. Some people read the Adam and Eve story and say, those are historical people. And they try to reconcile all of these differences we just looked at, the differences between the two stories. Bible scholar John Goldingay points out that if you take these two stories as would-be literal historical accounts, you have your work cut out to reconcile them. But he says this is unnecessary if they are historical parables, symbolic stories. So some people read Adam and Eve as these very important symbolic stories about the condition of all humanity. And then finally, some people read the Adam and Eve stories as Israel's loss of wisdom and exile. So they say Adam was created by God and exiled from Eden for disobeying. And it's kind of like a mini version of Israel's story. The people of Israel were created by God and exiled from the promised land for disobeying. And so there are Christians of deep and abiding faith who hold all three of these different views about the Adam and Eve stories. And each of these three perspectives takes the Adam and Eve story seriously. Each of these perspectives treats this, this Adam and Eve creation story as if it is saying something foundational, saying something crucial. So it's worth admitting that it's uncomfortable to let contradicting stories just sit side by side. We feel the need to make sense of them and reconcile them. We want the stories of Genesis to line up with what we want Genesis to be saying. And it's hard to just let this ancient book say whatever it was saying in its ancient context when we have so many burning questions to ask. But evidently, the editors of Genesis really didn't see a problem with these contradicting details in the two creation stories because those details aren't really the point. In fact, 
you only have to few, turn a few more pages in the book of Genesis and you find more contradicting stories. Another crucial story, the, the language story, the development of language, which is a pretty big deal. So Genesis 10 verse 5 tells us about how after the flood, there were these three new people groups descended from Noah's three sons. And they made up a total of like 70 different nations that spread out over the earth after the flood. And it's actually noted three different times in Genesis 10 that these people groups all had their own language. Like Genesis 10 verse 5, from these the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Okay, like fair enough, got it, these people have different languages. Well then you read the very next line, Genesis verse 11, chapter 11 verse 1, and it says flat out, it says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Uh, did I miss something? Like, hello, do they, do they have one language? Or do they have a whole bunch of languages? Which is it? I'm very confused. So once again, the editors of Genesis don't really see a problem with putting this story story of uh, the family tree of Noah's descendants and the development of new languages. These are two different stories about the development of language and the editors just put them right side by side. The second story is the story of the Tower of Babel. It's kind of an ancient satire that is seems to be poking at the Babylonian worship structures, these towers they would build called ziggurats. And so we have these two different stories side by side. So I want to pause here. Our goal today was to begin getting a handle on understanding the book of Genesis in its ancient context. And I admit we left all of the what about science questions just sitting there. And so in our worship gathering, we did something, and I don't know how this is going to work for you if you're just listening online. But in our worship gathering, I gave people space to talk, space to process. Um, I asked them to refrain from trying to convince one another of, you know, which view. Adam and Eve as historic figures. Adam and Eve as parables. Adam and Eve as a mini-story of Israel. I asked people to try to refrain from convincing one another. You can say, here's the perspective, here's the way I'm currently looking at things in a very humble way. That's different than trying to tell someone else why they're wrong or why they should think like you think. Uh, so I invited people to allow for differences and diversity. You are all people of good and beautiful faith, no matter your view. But there's this 
reflection question, this discussion question. What about this stands out as most meaningful or helpful to you? And what burning question or questions do you still carry? So chew on that, reflect on that. If you're listening with someone, chat about that. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.